just like the sun over the mountaintop. You know I'll always come again. spend my morning times like sunlight dancing on your skin hello everyone and welcome to the Tobolowski files I'm David Chen, and joining me as always, he is the man who played Dr. Berthram in the Netflix original movie, Fractured, Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm doing very good. That, I didn't expect that uh, citation, David, of Dr. Berthram. We shot that in Chile, Winnipeg. And uh, Winnipeg is a city that I would go back to again and again and again. I love the Winnipegians. Uh, do you know what the Do you know what the slogan is of Winnipeg? I do not, sir. Friendly Manitoba. Oh. And let me t- let me tell you something. The folks in Winnipeg are extremely friendly, mm. and and all in a good way. I still remember my server's name. Her name was Elizabeth. And she always gave me coffee, fresh, hot coffee, even when I didn't want any. And she always did it with a smile. I would go back to Winnipeg in a flash. All right. Well, I'm glad to hear you had a great experience making (laughs) Fractured on Netflix. You know, I watched Fractured on Netflix, and there was a shocking lack of Stephen Tobolowsky in that film. Uh, Well, see... You know, I I was there for about two and a half weeks. I had a fantastic time. I thought the script was a very kind of Twilight Zone-ish, kind of scary kind of script. So I really enjoyed the idea of of doing that script. But I am part of a hallucination, David. And if I had been in more of the film, it would have been more of a 70s type film rather than a Twilight Zone film. Uh-huh. You don't want to have your hallucinations being the biggest part of a film. I, I think you might have just spoiled that movie for everyone, but you know what? <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Uh, in any case, uh, you are listening to The Tobolowski Files. It has been almost three years since the last episode of The Tobolowski Files. You're hurting me, David. You're hurting me. In that time, we've gotten a lot of questions. Is The Tobolowski Files coming back? Uh, when is the Tobolowski Files coming back? Is the Tobolowski Files coming back? And obviously, by de- by dint of the fact that you are hearing us now, the Tobolowski Files is back. Now, why has it taken this long for the Tobolowski Files to come back? Tobo, any insight into that question? <laughs> We've had busy lives, David. David, <laughs> do you realize what I've been doing the last three years? Tell me. I have been, I've been doing a lot of television, and you know what you do when you are, I've been doing the Goldbergs, I've been doing Schooled, and I've been doing The Magnificent One Day at a Time, which is now going to be on Pop TV, which I'm very excited about. That is when very exciting. Do- it was on the air. It got canceled. It was brought back from the dead. It's now a Pop TV. That whole thing happened in the time since the last episode of The Tobolowski Files. It, it's amazing. and We're starting our fourth season, and this will be the first season on Pop. 
And we love the people pop. They're very enthusiastic about the show and passion. This is one thing I learned in the last three years, David. It's, it's not enough to have a show like One Day at a Time that's a great show with a great cast, great writers, great director. You need to have power and passion behind the production to keep that thing on the air. And Sony Television and Pop TV have power and passion, and they brought us back from the dead, David. So I would like, I have a a glass of something right here in front of me, and (laughs) I am going to toast Sony and Pop TV for making One Day at a Time possible this year. Thank you so much. Indeed. It is incredible that it was back from the dead, and uh, I look forward to checking it out in its new incarnation. I've also been quite busy, uh, got a new job, made some life transitions, so it's been a really busy time for us both. And on top of all that, how many words is each episode of The Tobolowski Files, Stephen? Well, it's morphed into about 8,000 words. So, you, you know, a book publisher like Simon & Schuster, when you do a book, you sign a contract, and you say that your book has to be 80,000 words. So if 8,000 words are in each episode of The Tobolowski Files, David, how many episodes of The Tobolowski Files equals one entire book? If I'm doing the math correctly, 10 episodes. 10 episodes. And David, this season of The Tobolowski Files will be more than 10 episodes. Mm, Yeah. So So already I've written 12. So 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 it will be more. The reason we kind of waited was because we wanted to bank all the episodes up so that we could release them all on a weekly basis. Uh, all like Every week, one new episode a week. Uh, and we can commit to, right now, uh, an additional at least 12 episodes of The Tobolowski Files, starting with this episode that you're listening to right now. So That is correct. Uh, we wanted to wait until we had that ready to announce, uh, and it took a long time to get to that point, but we are here now. <laughs> And yes. so you can look forward to at least 12 episodes. And uh, at the end of that, you know, I think at the end of the last episode that we recorded, Stephen, we said we would let people know a reasonable time frame they could expect a new show in. And I think we pretty much blew right past that. So We blew right uh, through that promise, David. So just, you know, this, I will say, I'm, I'm fairly confident we're going to keep this promise uh, about yeah. the 12 new episodes. Uh, yes. Unless something, you know, really uh, unforeseen happens, that is going to be the plan. Uh, And so we're going to start with this episode of the podcast. One thing we want to note, at the end of every episode, we usually have a little banter to take us out. We're not going to do that today. We will continue doing that in future episodes. But at the end of today's episode, there's going to be a little special treat, and uh, Stephen is going to explain that. So just wanted to give people a heads up on that. And and, and since there is not going to be some closing banter, we want to tell people uh, our announcements right at the top of the show. One of those announcements is, Stephen, at some point... During or after we publish this podcast episode, we are going to be putting some of your stories onto YouTube. Uh, And where can people find your slash our new YouTube channel, Stephen? It would be at youtube.com slash Tobofiles. And that's one word, T-O-B-O-F-I-L-E-S. Yeah, YouTube.com slash Tobofiles. Yeah, Russian spelling of Tobofiles. That is correct. That is correct. So uh, check that out. We'll link to it in the show notes. uh, And make sure you subscribe because we got some great stories with a live audience uh, coming for you on YouTube as well in the near future. Or maybe it's already there. By the time you're listening to this, it might already be there. Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen in the future? But you would have to go to YouTube.com slash Tobofiles to find out. 
Indeed, indeed. Okay, so all that said, Stephen, one of the things you've been doing over the course of the last few years is you've been doing a lot of traveling for your book tour, right? You published oh, a book, Lord. My Adventures with God. You've been traveling yes. around the country for the book. That's right. At two books, you know, uh, Dangerous Animals Club first traveled a lot, then My Adventures with God. So, yes, it's an understatement that, <laughs> that this year I traveled a lot, David. I counted it up. I visited 31 cities in three months, and I'm still on antibiotics to prove it. In traveling to those 31 cities, David, I've been on board 60 different airplanes because you can't get from Burbank to Cherry Hill without flying to Phoenix first. Airports have many things in common. They all have expensive, cheap food. There's the $3 muffin, the $6 taco, and my favorite, the $12 beef fat on a bun. The bun is a major food group at airports. French rolls, croissants, footlongs, all of them taste like they've just been awakened from cryogenic slumber. The Denver airport was an exception. They had a cinnamon bun store. Concourse C smelled like my mother's kitchen. When we were little, Mom baked Pillsbury cinnamon buns for breakfast every Wednesday morning. Back then, Pillsbury didn't bother with variety. They made a simple product, a can of dough. Inside a cardboard tube were eight squished cinnamon rolls. You peeled them off, you put them in a round pan. They baked for 20 minutes at 400 degrees, which is hot enough to burn flesh off of the bone. At the bottom of the cardboard tube was a little tub of icing. That little tub was the first evidence any of us had that there was a god. Mom let us put the rolls in the pan, but we were never, never allowed to put the icing on the rolls. That was an adult task. I don't think it was a matter of us having to handle a knife or coming in contact with a 400-degree aluminum pan. We had not yet developed the willpower to get the icing from the knife to the bun without stopping at our mouths first. Pillsbury cinnamon rolls provided many teaching moments. We learned math. There were three children, eight cinnamon rolls. That meant someone was going to get screwed. We used to fight over who got three buns and who got two. We, we tried to use a merit system, but none of us had any merit, so that didn't work. My older brother Paul suggested we allocate the buns by age and size. That worked for me. The only loser would be our little sister Barbie. She'd be out of luck until Paul went to college. I didn't see the cinnamon bun allocation as a potential crisis. Barbie was four. She had only been walking for a couple years. Why would she expect to get as many buns as Paul or me? Even though Barbie was too young to go to school, she knew that the cinnamon buns didn't add up right, and she knew it wasn't fair. Now, I was seven. I had already learned that life wasn't fair. Nothing any of us did was equal. Dad wore a tie and made money. Mom could drive a car. Paul played on the Winwood Lions football team and wore a real uniform with shoulder pads. I couldn't do any of those things. Barbie needed to see that this was the way of the world. Eventually she did, and the crying never stopped. Wednesday mornings became a time of unrelenting grief. Mom suggested we each get two buns and make the remaining two buns communal. I thought this was a terrible idea and probably un-American. 
Mom promised she would cut them into equal pieces to make sure everyone had their fair share, but I knew that wouldn't work. Cinnamon buns don't cut. They mashed. I told Mom to hold off on her bun plan while I tried to explain to Barbie that we were growing boys and needed the extra cinnamon roll to play baseball. My logical approach only threw gasoline on the fire. I was certain that Cinnamon Bun Wednesday would come to an end. The only solution I could see was to change the world. I hadn't yet learned that changing the world was my mother's specialty. She came up with a Solomon-like solution. Two cans of Cinnamon Buns. Now we were rolling in the dough. The bun count still wasn't going to work out evenly, but nobody cared. We could never eat 16 cinnamon rolls. Barbie ate a third cinnamon roll just to demonstrate a need for living in a just world. Paul and I ate extra cinnamons just to see how the rich folk lived. No matter how we pigged out, there were still rolls left in the second pan. Mom used to put the leftover bun in my lunch. This never worked. After a cinnamon bun cools, they undergo a chemical transformation and revert back to their natural state, a brick with icing. I always threw my lunchtime cinnamon bun away, but I never told my mother. I was afraid she would consider wasting food and go back to the single can of Pillsbury. The cinnamon bun taught me that very few things are precious in and of themselves. What might mean everything at 8 a.m., could be worthless by noon. Footnote, I don't eat cinnamon rolls anymore. Not after my heart surgery. They're more exciting ways to die. But I still luxuriate in the aroma. It's a reminder that God is still watching over me. I still had over two hours before my flight began boarding. That was long enough to watch War for the Planet of the Apes, which I could not do again. On the book tour thus far... One-third of the flights had onboard entertainment. On those flights, half of them had what they call our featured film. Unless you knew how to operate the back of the person's seat in front of you, you had to watch the featured film. I never want to see War for the Planet of the Apes again. Besides the long ape concentration camp section that makes up most of Act 2, I hate the fact that Caesar the Chimpanzee is a better actor than I am. Andy's more handsome. What kind of business am I in where the chimpanzee is the best-looking male actor in film today? Now, I've read magazines. I know, I know, Andy Serkis did the motion capture. But have you seen Andy Serkis? Caesar is way better looking than he is. I decided to walk, take in the sights. No matter what airport you stop at, you will find curious stores selling curious products. Who knew there were so many types of almonds? Salted, lightly salted, smoked, raw, sriracha-coated, flame-in-cajun, and something called oriental, which I was afraid to buy out of fear of being branded a racist. Stores in airports are small, probably because the space is limited. You can't have a Walmart in an airport. So each store specializes. The Denver airport had a popcorn store. It was very expensive popcorn. They also sold expensive water. They had a Rolex store, just in case you needed an $8,000 watch as a backup for your phone. They had a neck pillow store. They had a store that just sold sweatshirts that said Denver, and it worked. I was tempted to buy not one, but two 
Denver sweatshirts, one for each of my boys who are no longer boys and who never wore the Seattle sweatshirts I bought them when they were younger. Running down the center of the concourse was one of the longest stores I've ever seen at an airport, the sunglasses store. It was packed. Someone in marketing knew something. It had more customers than the duty-free liquor store. There were dozens of people trying on different pairs of sunglasses, looking in mirrors, trying to decide what level of mystery suited their personality. Across from the sunglasses store was the store which I suspect started it all, the bookstore. All airports have bookstores. The bookstore also sold nuts, but they're still called bookstores, except at the Miami airport, the nuts section so overwhelmed the reading section that they called the store diversions. Airport bookstores seemed to be independent. There was no consensus as to what book they put on display. In the front of the store, they could have Malcolm Gladwell's David and Goliath, or it could be the giant book of Sudoku. At one airport, they had It Takes Two, Our Story by the Property Brothers. Pause to reflect. The Property Brothers have a book. Wow. I must admit that one left a mark. I kept telling myself, it's all right, Stephen. They don't have your book at an airport bookstore because you're not a chef or a sports figure. You don't write mysteries. You're not famous like Hillary Clinton. You don't have a price on your head like Salman Rushdie. But when I saw that the Property Brothers, Drew and Jonathan, got their book in a bookstore, I felt like jumping off a building. Not that their book is bad. I don't know. Probably won't read it. No, I'm sure I won't read it. And that's just envy on my part. One of the seven deadly sins, don't do what I do. Be better than me. But when I saw their book on display at the front of the airport bookstore, I wanted to drink a cup of poison. Footnote on the reflection. There is always a danger in using popular culture references like the Property Brothers in describing something. There are those who don't know, who don't have basic cable, and are unsure what I'm talking about. The Property Brothers are two very tall, identical twins who tear down and rebuild substandard Canadian houses. I respect them. They've overcome huge challenges in making their show. Um, let's see, what would those be? First, they had to find ways to look different. Drew wears a sports coat. Jonathan wears lumberjack clothes. Um... They have to find ways to make it look like the brothers do something different. Uh, Drew talks on a cell phone. <laughs> Jonathan does everything else. And the producers had to find camera techniques to get them both in the same shot. I suspect that they put the camera up on a ladder with wide-angle lens. I mean, they're huge. At the Seattle Airport Bookstore, I browsed the books and magazines before I bought a bag of trail mix. I noticed a lot of similar titles. You see, you can't copyright a title. Authors can call their books anything they want. Right? Even if you're warned against duplications. For example, you could write a financial book called Your Money Gone with the Wind. Or a celebrity biography, David Copperfield. Now you see me, now you don't. People could accidentally buy your book thinking it was a different book and be very angry when they got home. My Uncle Sylvan went to see the movie Babe, thinking it was about Babe Ruth. 
He said he kept watching James Cromwell dancing with a pig, wondering when the baseball game was going to start. The world is dangerous enough without writing a book called Lord of the Rings, Fritz von Erich, King of Texas Wrestling. A literary agent explained to me that a frequently used title argues laziness on the part of the author, but I have an alternate theory. The purpose of a title is to suggest a unifying theme. A number of authors writing different stories with the same title could be a literary expression of the collective unconscious. Perhaps a larger theme about mankind is seeking expression. Now, here are a few titles I saw in heavy rotation. Title number one, Doing It My Way. These books are often autobiographies of sports figures, politicians, or fitness gurus. It's interesting that they're usually written by other people, indicating that one of the ways they did it their way was to get other people to do it for them. Title number two, Some Variation of the Best and the Brightest. The most famous of these books is about soldiers in the Vietnam War. Similar titles center around scientists making the atomic bomb and comedy writers in New York. These two titles sound different, but they point to the same unifying theme. The hero of the story is set apart from the ordinary world. The implied criticism, of course, is that we, the readers, are the ordinary world, but we forgive them, because deep down we know we are special. We just don't have the energy to write a book. We enjoy the fable aspect of the quest in which he, she, or they were able to carve something remarkable out of the unremarkable without the help of a family friend. This is the story of victory against the odds. At the St. Louis airport, I saw another title that caught my attention. The cover of a People magazine announced Hugh Jackman, The Untold Story. While I still had Wi-Fi, I sat down and scrolled. It was a treasure trove. I found the untold story of milk, the untold story of Bitcoin, the untold story of Easter, the untold story of creation, the untold story of Free Willy, the untold story of Xbox One's backward compatibility, and yes, the Property Brothers, the untold story. I tried not to get sidetracked by the irony that so many untold stories were being told. I went back to read about Hugh Jackman. The article focused on his school days and the various difficulties he had along the way. This story is not the same as the best and the brightest. Hugh Jackman didn't do it his way. You would think it would be easy to be Hugh Jackman handsome, talented, popular, gazillionaire who could sing and have washboard abs. But no, it's all in the untold story. When someone writes an untold story, they're not telling a story of victory. They're suggesting that our vision of the world is wrong and that this misconception is not trivial. It is fundamental. The untold story attempts to set the record straight. The effect of the untold story is far-reaching. It reminds us the truth is only a bookmark waiting for a new, more complete truth to take its place. What we think of as history, as science, are reduced to vast catalogs of the incorrect and incomplete, with findings that are often driven by prejudices of the day. And if you don't believe me, read Galileo, The Untold Story. 
I grew up thinking that the driving force of my life was knowledge. That's why I spent so much time doing homework. That's why the first thing I did when I moved to Los Angeles, after I got an apartment and bought beer, was to get a library card. I was wrong. The untold story holds the key. When we don't trust the truth, it is the secret that compels us. I've never gone so wrong as for telling lies to you. The scent of Cinnabons interrupted my reevaluation of Hugh Jackman. I put people back on the shelf and went in search of food. The Burbank Airport provided a variety of things considered to be food coffee, alcohol, chocolate bars, chicken, tenders. I had coffee. I was saving alcohol as my reward for getting to Indianapolis. I had two crushed chocolate bars in my carry on from the last trip. I ordered chicken tenders. Chicken tenders are one of the greatest foods invented by man, God, or chickens. Like cinnamon buns, they have a great aroma. A tender is almost an entire meal unto itself. It has the fried bread course on the outside, juicy protein in the middle. You could dip them in anything. The dip changes the dining experience. Dip in ranch dressing, you have a cheese course. Dip in ketchup, it's a potato. Some lunatics even dip them in honey. Dessert. What I like most is that when I get an order of chicken tenders, I never feel like I'm overeating. The kitchen has taken care of portion control for me. There's an emotional satisfaction that in some way I'm saving the planet by not eating the whole chicken. $15 bought a basket of tenders and a beer. I I decided to move up the alcohol reward for having to watch War for the Planet of the Apes again on the last flight. As I sat in the noisy nothing of the airport, my mind went back to the lunchtime cinnamon bun I threw away without telling my mother. The untold story demonstrates a larger meaning of my actions. I was willing to sacrifice the truth to keep the peace while making sure we all still got what we wanted. That's a pretty sophisticated negotiation for a child. It also has been one of the defining characteristics of my adulthood. Who I was and what I became are both part of the untold story of the discarded cinnamon bun. The secret of the sacrificial bun was not the first untold story I kept from my mother. When I was seven, I was shaped more by secrets than by knowledge. I was a member of the Dangerous Animals Club. All of our missions were top secret. At night, I had regular visits from I the Monster. I kept knives under my pillow in case he decided to attack. I kept both I and the knives a secret. I've often wondered why. 
For years, I went with the obvious. Catching snakes and talking to hallucinations would worry my parents. Now I think there were other forces at work. Psychotherapist Carl Jung theorized that the human psyche is made up of two parts, the unconscious and the conscious. The conscious mind is a synthesis of what we understand from the world from our senses. The conscious mind can be changed by what we learn. Experience matters. The unconscious mind is a different animal. It's a compilation of impulses and perceptions that may go back generations, and it can never be changed. There's a continual dialogue between the conscious and the unconscious mind, trying to find common ground. There often isn't. The result is confusion. The negatives of this rift is that we live in a constant state of anxiety. The positives is that the energy of this anxiety causes us to create. Jung suggests that all science and art are attempts to reconcile the known and the unknown. The world's religions are based on archetypes from the unconscious mind from which we form beliefs. Our holy books are records of these psychic battles. This makes the story of Jacob's ladder make all the more sense in the world. Even television programs come from this attempt to reconcile the rift between the conscious and the unconscious mind. Look at the Property Brothers. Drew, Jonathan, twins. But are they? Drew wears a tie. He's on the phone with realtors all day. He is the conscious mind. He can handle the world, not Jonathan. He's always uncovering bad wiring. He's over budget. He doesn't have enough time to do the job. But he's a one-man wrecking crew that in the end can turn a nasty, semi-attached property on the outskirts of Toronto into a palace with an open floor plan. Together, they form an unstable but unstoppable force that gets their book into the airport bookstores. In Jung's world, every story we tell has an untold story. In my adventures with God, I told several stories about my return to Judaism when I was in my 40s. I was working on the movie Radioland Murders with actor-writer Larry Miller. Larry encouraged me to come to services again. His invitation landed on fertile ground. I met an old man sweeping leaves in front of the building who became my teacher for the next 10 years, Rabbi Meyer Schimmel. Rabbi Schimmel's humor, knowledge, and passion for the Torah changed my life. That was the story. But then came the untold story. One loop of the book tour went from Indianapolis to St. Louis to Miami to Tampa to Houston and finally to San Antonio. My communication with the outside world was dependent on me not being in airplane mode. In St. Louis, I got a message from an old friend, Lou Wolf. He sent a cryptic text that said, Debbie Biddix needs to speak to you. I didn't recall a Debbie Biddix, so I didn't answer the message. And then I forgot. Her request got lost among the early morning trips to the airport and the evening book events. One night, I remembered and returned Lou's message. Who is Debbie Biddix? I texted. He answered, Rabbi Schimmel's daughter. Oh, my God. And it all came flooding back. Rabbi Schimmel had two daughters, Debbie and Selma. 
Some of the youngest was stricken with cancer at an early age, maybe in college. But instead of giving in, she became a powerful advocate for those suffering and surviving the disease. She passed away a few years ago. Debbie was the eldest daughter. She married Ken Biddix, a brilliant man with a wonderful sense of humor. Ken always made me laugh. I hadn't heard from Debbie or Ken for over a decade. And now I had to know what Debbie needed to tell me. I closed the text window with Lou and pulled out the big guns. I called him and got her number. Stephen, I'm so glad you called. I was afraid you wouldn't remember me. Well, I didn't at first, Debbie. I forgot your married name. Are, are you all right? Oh, of course not, Debbie laughed. Life is... Well, I don't have to tell you what life is. No, Debbie, you don't. Stephen, I was listening to the radio, and I heard you doing an interview. You were talking about your book? Oh, my book, My Adventures with God, I said. Yes, yes, and I was so excited, I was so happy for you, I ordered the book. Well, well, thank you, Debbie. No, 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 thank you, Stephen. Thank you for what you said about my father. I had no idea what he meant to you. Well, he changed my life, Debbie. Well, he changed a lot of people's lives, Stephen, but that's not why I'm calling. You don't know the whole story. What whole story? Stephen, you know Dad died in 2005. Yeah, I I heard, Debbie. Right. But what you probably didn't know was that Dad had dementia the last two years of his life. Ken and I took him in. We set him up in our back bedroom. I put a baby monitor in his room to make sure he was all right at night, you know? Yeah, sure, Debbie. Well, one night, Ken and I heard sounds on the monitor. I turned it up, and it was Dad. He was talking to God. Stephen, he was talking to God about you. Me? I said. Yes, he was praying for you all night. So I got a pad and pen and I took it down. He would talk to God about various people from the congregation, but he kept coming back to you. And he said, Dear God, please help Stephen Tobolowsky. Please heal his heart. He's had so much sorus, which is Hebrew for trouble. He is a good man. I know you can help him. Please. When I read your book... I could see the love you had for my dad. I wanted you to know he loved you too, until the end. Thank you, Debbie. And Stephen, I wanted to give you the picture of my father that was in the synagogue. I think you would give it a good home. I would be honored, Debbie. Yes? And, and Debbie, I want to thank your father for his prayers on my behalf. Next time you talk to him... Tell him it worked. I will, Stephen. I'll tell him tonight. Out on the road that lies before me and how There are some turns where I will spin Oh
the book tour had many surprises. Indianapolis has the best airport. Yes. Minnesota, the biggest airport. You could die on the moving sidewalk to Terminal G. They wouldn't find your body for a week. Miami has the most nut stores. Sarasota is the most non-stress airport. No lines. The TSA is like my mom watching TV. You walk through the metal detector. She smiles and says, have a nice time, sweetheart. The airport I visited the most, Phoenix, followed by Denver. Even during the limited span of the book tour, I developed behavior patterns. In Phoenix, I went for the $32 chicken burrito and Bloody Mary. In Denver, the aforementioned chicken fingers and what they call a craft beer. One of the most unusual connections I made was in Los Angeles. The airport was undergoing construction. It was not only unclear as to which gate I was supposed to leave from, but if I had to walk to a different terminal. I looked at one of the big TV screens to see if they had any news. Nothing. On the way to Delta Customer Service, I passed a desk that had a big sign on it that said, Information. It was manned by a senior citizen wearing bright green t-shirt with black drawstring pants held up by yellow suspenders. He wore a little alpine-style hat with a feather in it. He waved at me as I walked past. I nodded and continued on to something that looked more official. The line at Delta Support was as long as Space Mountain at Disneyland, so for some reason, I decided to go back to the information booth. Uh, excuse me, sir? Yes, can I help you? Yes, uh, I need information. I smiled and pointed at a sign. The man smiled and shrugged. I'm sorry, I don't have any information. You, you don't, but you're the information man. I know, he said somewhat apologetically. I used to have information, but I don't anymore. What happened? Well, with all the work at the airport, the information kept changing all the time. I ended up giving people the wrong information, so the airport said I had to stop. What I have here are, let's see, a few hotel brochures and a bus schedule, but I don't think anyone takes the bus anymore. He looked at his bus schedule. Yeah, this one's two years old. Probably not accurate. Yeah, probably not, I said. But you're still here. Why? For morale. I think it gives people a lift when they see me. They know there's someone friendly here to help them if they need directions. To tell you the truth, almost no one stops at my desk for information. People look at the screens. You're the only person who's come by today. Well, you caught my eye, sir. It, it could be the hat. He took off his hat and admired it. It was a gift. My granddaughter. Well, so you're more of a goodwill ambassador. Yes, sir. That is exactly what I am. So what seems to be your problem? Well, I don't know if I can trust an information man with no information, I laughed. The old man winked at me and said, well, give me a try. Well, Delta is changing terminals. It's crazy here today, and I don't know where I'm supposed to go. I don't even know if I'm in the right terminal. The man nodded. When does your flight leave? Uh, in a couple of hours. The man stood up, adjusted his feather. Come with me. Where are we going? I'm going to get you some information. We walked through the streams of human traffic. We looked at the big monitors. 
What's your flight number? I looked at my ticket. Uh, Delta 1628 to Atlanta. Uh, That's a big jet. Sit down here for a second. I'll be back. I parked myself on a row of seats in the busy concourse. I watched the information man vanish into the crowd. After about five minutes, I began to wonder, what if he's insane? I could be waiting here forever. But there was something in his wink that seemed to give me confidence. I began a new calculation as to how long of a leash I would give him before I switched to plan B. Five minutes? Ten? I didn't have to wonder long. A moment later, the information man came back through the crowd, bringing a Delta pilot with him. Ah, good, you're still here, he said. Uh, That I am. I stood to meet the pilot. Hello, said the pilot. Your friend tells me you don't know where to go? Uh, No, sir, I don't. Let me see your ticket. He said with authority. I handed it over. The pilot studied the ticket and smiled. You know, your friend came right into the pilot's lounge and asked for help. And good thing he did. The Atlanta flights are leaving out of Terminal 8 today. That's at the very end of the airport. You're in Terminal 5 now. So you have to walk down this hall, follow the signs to Terminal 6, and when you get there, just keep walking. It's quite a hike, but you have the time. I thanked him profusely. The pilot vanished back into the masses. The information man walked with me to the corridor that led to Terminal 6. There you go, he said happily. Listen, you are my hero. I would never have found my gate without you. Well, I couldn't let you down. Were you going back to your desk? Of course, he winked. It's my job. The information man is now woven into the fabric of the untold stories of the book tour. I love it for so many reasons. Nothing nothing in it makes sense. Just the details. Why was the information man still at the airport if he didn't have any information? If the pilot knew where my plane was taking off, why didn't Delta? They could have just put it on the monitor. How did the information man get into the pilot's lounge with the hat on? And it makes total sense in the archetypical realm of the unconscious mind. It tells the completely believable story that the world doesn't work the way it's supposed to. But you can still get to your gate on time. One of the most unbelievable untold stories from my release of Adventures with God didn't happen on the book tour. I was in Los Angeles on the set of One Day at a Time. It was a rehearsal day, so I was chillaxing up in my dressing room, one of the scenes I wasn't in, and I get a text from a young man from Rio de Janeiro, Gabriel Barreto. Gabriel said he remembered me from when he was a child, that I worked with his father, director Bruno Barreto, on the movie Bossa Nova. He said he remembered his mother, Amy Irving, punching me over and over again and me falling on the floor. He thought it was very funny, and all this was true. In 1999, I did work with Bruno Beretta on Bossa Nova in Rio, and there was this little boy on the set that Bruno introduced to everyone. That must have been Gabrielle. And yes, Amy punched me (laughs) repeatedly in this one scene. Gabrielle tweeted that he would always remember that day. And when he saw that I had written a book, he bought it. He said he really enjoyed my adventures with God and had a question about one story in particular. 
In the book, I write about my early days in Los Angeles with my girlfriend, Beth, and my two friends from Texas, T-Bone and Betty. We were actors in Dallas, successful. We starred in shows. We were in demand. When we got to Los Angeles, it was a different story. It was hopeless. We couldn't get an agent. We couldn't get to see an agent to be rejected. We couldn't even work for free. Seriously, they had showcases where actors could do a scene in public if they paid $100. So instead of doing what we loved, we spent our evenings sitting around the dining room table drinking beer, telling stories of past glories, and listening to David Bowie records. One night around midnight, I got a great Budweiser-induced idea. What? asked T-Bone. I said, I was driving around today listening to the Country Western Station, and they played this album called Red-Headed Stranger. You know, I think this Willie Nelson guy's got talent. I think he's like the real deal. He's going to be something someday. My friend stared at me. Stephen, he's already something, Betty said. Red-Headed Stranger is the number one album in the country. Really? I said. Well, well that's even better. Uh, what's your plan? asked T-Bone. Okay, guys, what if I wrote a song for Willie Nelson? Everyone continued to stare at me. Hey, look, 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 it's not crazy. He's from Texas. We're from Texas. I'll write him a song. If he buys it, we can use the money for acting classes, for rent. I bet we could even parlay selling the song into getting an agent. Either because of the beer or the lateness of the hour, T-Bone said, Why not? Let's give it a try. So I went to the piano and I wrote a song for Willie Nelson. Betty had a beautiful voice. I recorded it on the cassette from our phone answering machine. We had another round of beers, and while we were listening to the tape, oh, it was great, I told everyone I would mail the cassette in the morning, then all we had to do was wait. And Beth asked, where are you going to mail it? That was a good point. I thought about it a second. I said, you know, Willie Nelson is kind of like Santa Claus. I bet if I send it to Willie Nelson, Austin, Texas, the post office will know exactly what to do with it. I'm sure they have to deal with this kind of thing all the time. Well, (laughs) that was a good enough answer at 2 a.m. Next day, I put the cassette in a padded envelope, covered it with stamps, mailed it to Willie Nelson, Austin, Texas, and I never once considered the possibility that it would not get there. That's the story in the book. Here's the untold story. Gabrielle reminded me of this chapter in the book and asked, So, do you still have the song for Willie Nelson? Well, I do, I said. I re-recorded it a year ago so I wouldn't forget it. Gabrielle said, Stephen, if you have the sound file, send it to me because I'm standing next to Willie Nelson right now. What? I typed. (laughs) Gabrielle wrote, I'm in New York now. I grew up to be a director and a producer. I'm doing a documentary on Willie. I work with him every day. He's my pal. I told him about your book and about the song you wrote for him. Willie says he would love to hear it. If you have it, send it. I'll give it to him. And I did. Gabrielle listened to it. He said he thought it was great, and he gave it to Willie. 
Gabrielle said, Willie's listening to it now, dot, dot, dot. He's laughing, dot, 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 giving it a thumbs up. Gabrielle said, Stephen, I don't know if Willie is going to put your song on his next album. You never know. But I wanted you to know that when you mailed that song to Willie Nelson, Austin, Texas, it was finally delivered 40 years later. No part of that story makes sense. Willie hearing my song after 40 years is more than a tale of mathematical probability over time. It is the story of creativity. Creativity is an act of faith. It works the same way as prayer. You imagine it. You speak it. You release it into the universe. That act goes on a journey that cannot be traced. When we receive an answer... It's hard to see it because it often arrives in a time and a place we never imagined in the pages of a book, in the melody of a song. I checked my phone. It was time to line up for my flight, connecting in Charlotte, then on to Fort Myers. I walked to the gate and maneuvered into position to cluster before boarding. It's true what they say. As you get older, everything goes faster. Bits and pieces of your life fly past you like debris in a tornado. Now I look for a unifying theme in every morning cup of coffee. I think what keeps me going is not our daily attempts to be the best and the brightest, but the chance to hear one more untold story. And if you're lucky, to hear the one that still makes you smile 40 years after you dropped it in the mail. The stewardess pointed to our group. It was our turn to board. I began to move and was hit by something that stopped me in my tracks. It was the sweet smell of cinnamon rolls. I looked around, seeking the source, and there it was. Over in boarding group three, a family of four, young mother and father, looking exhausted. The little boy and girl were happily munching on cinnamon buns. I wanted to rush over and tell them that they had made a wise snacking decision, something that could shape the rest of their lives. But I didn't. I had carry-on luggage. I needed the overhead space. I didn't want to risk being detained by security. I moved onto the jetway. As I walked into the darkness, I closed my eyes and breathed, and there it was again. Cinnamon. Unmistakable. I smiled with the confidence that at least on this flight, God was still watching over me. And now here is the song I wrote for Willie Nelson. Debbie Anderson on vocals, Justin Bailu on the dobro, Stan Edwards fiddle, Drew Larson on bass, Trey Bears drums, Chandler Carswell guitar. Have a good flight. said you were tired of living with me and you'd only be happy if you could be free but now you've come back trying to take me for a ride acting just like you've got time on your side 
forgotten the nights that I cried How I begged you to stay, forgetting my pride It hurt me so bad, I thought I would die Leaving me lonely and bitter inside And now you've come back, trying to take me for a ride Acting just like you've got time on your Side.